Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage, where I continue this August series of programmes marking the 75th anniversary of the end of the Pacific War in Hong Kong. This week, I'm joined by war historian Kuang Chiman as we look at the Hong Kong Chinese experience here during the Battle of Hong Kong in December 1941 and then on through three years and eight months of Japanese military occupation. Kuang Chiman is an associate professor at the Department of History at Hong Kong Baptist University. Among other titles, he's the author of Eastern Fortress, A Military History of Hong Kong, 1840 to 1970. Well, at that time, Hong Kong had a 1.8 million residents. Almost 99% were, would be Chinese. But the term Chinese can be misleading because it's highly diverse people, the so-called Chinese at that time, because you have very different people, overseas Chinese, you have local Cantonese, you have refugees from different parts of China fleeing the Japanese forces. And of course, you have differences between the locals as well. You have local new territories population, you have urban working class people, you have the kind of westernized urban elite, the middle class, and then you have the boat people. There are 100,000 boat people lived in a very different lifestyle, had a very different culture with the rest of the population. So, so, so the Danka people. Yeah, the Danka people. So all these people were often being simply categorized as Chinese. So they shared very different worldview and aspirations and so on. But, but they all lived in Hong Kong, of course. Yeah, that's a very good point. So 1.8 million, but as you say, very di- diverse yeah. populations. Now, in the, so they've already, a, a number of them have already been fleeing the Sino-Japanese War, as you say. So we already had refugees building up here yeah. in the late 1930s. But with the knowledge gradually at the start of December, perhaps, or the end of November, that the Japanese are definitely moving south, and are likely to invade Hong Kong. What was the reaction at that point? Were then people looking to to flee elsewhere? They did. Many did. In fact, around 100,000 to 200,000 left the colony before the attack. So by the Japanese attack on 8th of December 1941, Hong Kong probably had only 1.6 million residents. So many actually did leave. So they went back to the mainland? Yes. Many actually went back into Guangdong and maybe Guangxi as well, through uh, Guangzhou Wan. Now, you as a historian, I mean, how, how have you managed to track all of this? Is there plenty of uh, people that wrote about their experiences or historians that have looked at it? That's a bit of a problem because mm. uh, many of the people who, who left did not write about their experience. So the biggest problem of this part of history is that many Hong Kong Chinese, so to speak, didn't really systematically talk about their experience. Maybe they would tell their sons and grandsons their stories. Okay, It's an oral tradition thing. But at the same time, in academia, we started to look into this from three decades ago. So there are some attempts to, to organize some oral history work. So something was left, but still not much. And the biggest problem is we know relatively little about the experience of those who who were being forced to leave Hong Kong during the Japanese invasion. Yes, because I I really do feel that it is something that uh, needs to be publicly covered in the sense that there was awful hardship during the occupation. I mean, starvation, you know, people 
sometimes having to make decisions they would never have to do during peacetime, difficult decisions, and uh, also, as you say, just, just absolute lack of food supply. So uh, can you tell me about, if we go first of all into the actual attack by Japanese forces on Hong Kong on December the 8th, 1941, you were talking about the breakdown in communities within the Chinese. Now, some of those would have fought with what we could classify as allied forces, I suppose, or yeah. um, the volunteers. Uh, some would have been part of, you know, part of it would have actually been soldiers within the British Army, and then some acted as guerrillas. And uh, please correct me if I haven't covered all areas. Yeah, one thing we, we did not really cover systematically until the past few years among the historian is that there's actually many Hong Kongers, uh, not just Chinese, in fact, local Hong Kong residents fought in the garrison during mm. the Battle of Hong Kong. Yeah. Just for, for an example, there were at least 1,500 to 2,000 Hong Kong Chinese fighting as part of the garrison, as regular soldiers or as volunteers in different units, Army, Navy, and Air Force. So, and at the same time, you have hundreds of Portuguese yes. also fighting in the garrison. But previous accounts until the last two decades usually focus on the British garrison, because of course, many were written by the soldiers themselves or the military historians. So that's why their experience would be very much not ignored, not deliberately ignored, but kind of overlooked because they focus on the units. Yes. So tell me about the Chinese within the, the British Army. So they would have actually been British Army soldiers. Among the more than a thousand Hong Kong Chinese fighting in the garrison, most of them would be support personnel, the logistics personnel, so drivers, coolies and so on. And, and many clerks, in fact, clerks, storemen, different kinds of workers and technicians and so on, repairmen. And at the same time, there were around five to 600 Hong Kong Chinese who fought as soldiers, as regular troops and volunteers. Many of them were gunners and sappers of the Royal Engineers, of course. And there was uh, around 50 to 60 Hong Kong Chinese regiments as soldiers. They fought as infantrymen. And there were several hundred Hong Kong volunteers organized into several companies. One of the companies was actually consists of only Eurasians. So it's not just Chinese. Yes, yes. Chinese. So in that sense. So there were Eurasians of uh, different ethnicity, but mainly Chinese with another ethnicity, British or even German, actually one or two of them. Yes. So many different people who just live in Hong Kong, see this place as home and fought in the garrison. In fact, some of them actually saw very intense actions, for example, during the Battle of Wong Chung Gap. And some of them were massacred by Japanese troops, for example, in Saiwan anti-aircraft battery. Nowadays, the place still exists, where a group of around 30 Eurasian gunners, all of them volunteers, were massacred by Japanese troops who captured them, but did not really want to keep the prisoners of war because they were advancing. So they just killed all of them. Oh, tragic. And, yeah. And actually, many of them were Hong Kong University students. So they, it was in the, at the prime of their youth, 2019, 20, 21 is the best moment of their life and suddenly find themselves in the battlefield. Very confusing battle and, and being killed. Now, let's have a look at a, a bit of the terminology that you've been describing. So when you talk about the garrison, what was that? What I mean garrison is, uh, is all the British forces in Hong Kong, including, of course, the British troops, 
Indian troops, uh, uh, Canadians, and the local Hong Kong Chinese who served in the British Armed Forces. Yes. So you've got those so, that. So, so you've got those that uh, were serving in the British Armed Forces, and then you had the Hong Kong Volunteer Defence Corps, which yeah. were civilian volunteer soldiers. They had been training yeah. for a good two to three years or longer um, ahead of uh, the invasion. So these would be a lot of civilians who would then train on the weekends, and then of course it became more intensified ahead of the invasion. But a number of them, as you say. I mean, a number of them died. Um, I think about between two and 300 actually died and saw some extreme intense fighting. And of course, many of those would then become prisoners of war. So you were t describing how some of the Hong Kong Chinese would be, as you say, in these various support personnel roles, such as clerks or doing supplies. But then also, as you said, some were sappers in the Royal Engineers. What's a sapper? Basically a soldier in the Royal Engineers. So in the Hong Kong Chinese sappers plays a very peculiar role in the Hong Kong garrison because on the one hand, they fought as foot soldiers, okay? For example, during the Battle of Wong Lai Chong Gap. But at the same time, they were expected to do a variety of jobs such as uh, repairing military facilities, building military facilities such as roads and, and bunkers and so on, and repair searchlights, maintain the searchlights. So very, very different kinds of jobs that were expected to ah. Yes. Now, at home, I've got that I bought in 1995. I've actually got a field telephone from the Second World War. I'm trying to establish whether that's from Singapore or from Hong Kong. And what always strikes me is the sheer weight of the thing. And it's in a metal box and then would have had, of course, whoever was running with that would have needed reams and reams of cable over their shoulders. And, of course, that would have been matched up with a, another phone at the other end. Can you describe some of the kit that these people would have been carrying? The, the field telephone you mentioned would be uh, mended by people of the Hong Kong Signal Company, which was a half British, half Chinese unit. 96 of them would be Hong Kong Chinese, another 100 or so of them would be British. So altogether around 200 personnel, 96 of them were Hong Kong Chinese. So on the one hand, it was a highly state-of-the-art technology of the time, but at the same time, many of these equipment were actually very cumbersome. Yes, yes, indeed. Yeah. And one of the experience of the British during this Battle of Hong Kong was that many of their equipments uh, were too cumbersome and produced so much noise during the night when, when, they, when they moved. So compared with the Japanese, where, where the, many of their uh, equipment were, were very light in weight and could be concealed and they make very little noises when moving at night. So that makes a lot of difference during the very confused fighting on Hong Kong Island. Well, that's interesting, yes. Also, I understand, although that I'm digressing slightly from the Hong Kong Chinese civilian aspect, um, I understand that the Canadians didn't come well kitted in terms of their uniforms. Yes, uh, the, the Canadian forces used a very different set because they, they, they came from... So it's, it's part of the Commonwealth's forces, yes, but at the same time they use uh, very similar but slightly different uniforms. And and they were, the biggest problem was that they were not trained and conditioned for to, to fight yeah. in Hong Kong yet. They were not given time. No. No, very difficult circumstances. But as you describe, yeah, uh, Wong Nai Chung Gap, particularly Saiwan, as you say. Also Stanley, of course, on December the 25th, uh, ahead of the surrender. The, I think the overnight on the 17th of December as well uh, are where many, many are killed. So uh, in terms of the 
Chinese, so as you say, the Chinese within both the British Armed Forces and also the volunteers. What's the situation after the surrender on December the 25th? Are some of them able just to simply escape? When the garrison decided to surrender, many British officers on the spot uh, allowed their Chinese troops to, to change into civilian clothes and leave. They just leave. So many went into hiding and around 130 of them were captured along with the British troops. So before the surrender, it was sort of understood that any Hong Kong Chinese who were captured by the Japanese forces would be immediately killed. So that didn't happen. So the Japanese simply put all these Chinese, Hong Kong Chinese prisoners of war with the British and put them in Sam Po prisoners of war camp. But in September 1942, they were released. So the Japanese just released all the Hong Kong Chinese prisoners of war who were soldiers, sappers and gunners. So some of them stayed in Hong Kong and being employed by the Japanese occupation government. Some did. But many of them actually escaped to Hong Kong and reported to the British Army Aid Group, which was active in South China. And can you describe what the British Army Aid Group was? Uh, the British Army Aid Group was an underground resistance organization, basically an intelligence organization w- which operated in South China, specifically in Guangdong and Guangxi. It was led by Lieutenant Colonel Lindsay Ride, uh, later on Colonel Ride, who was a medical officer of the Hong Kong Volunteer Defense Corps. So after the surrender of the garrison, he was captured, but he escaped with his Chinese assistant, Francis Lee. So they started to organize a resistance organization with the blessing of the British military, of course. So they started to gather the resources and gathered a group of British and Chinese escapees from Hong Kong. Most of the British officers who spoke Cantonese also were with them. So they started to organize uh, intelligence work and started to contact the prisoners of war in Hong Kong. So it was a very important organization because it supplied intelligence about Hong Kong and Guangdong to the American Army Air Force that operated in the area during the strategic air offensive against Japan. So without such groundwork, the air war would be very difficult to be conducted. And within the BAAG, of course, there were, as you say, some it, for Chinese or Chinese, what I found extraordinarily brave was the Chinese spies who come back into Hong Kong and uh, risk, of course, torture and execution in order to do that. But with being Chinese, obviously have the opportunity to just mix in with the population and be less obvious than somebody who's, say, Caucasian. Yes, it's very easy for these Hong Kong Chinese soldiers to sneak back into Hong Kong. It's not just soldiers, in fact, uh, Hong Kongers, basically, because they were Chinese or Eurasians. Some of them were actually mixed blood from rather unexpected corners. In, in fact, several of the gunners were descendants of Chinese and Jamaicans. Oh, really? Yes, as and so they, they, they had a darker skin color. So that makes them very effective in communicating with the Indian prisoners of war in Hong Kong. So tell me a little bit more about them. So those gunners, one of them actually being nicknamed Darkie. Oh. Not, not to be confused with the Darkie of the East River Column. So the, the Darkie who worked with the BAAG was actually an, a gunner. He was a descendant of a Jamaican and a Chinese. He was sent back to Hong Kong tried to contact with the Indian soldiers who were captured by the Japanese and being forced to work for the Japanese. So he actually organized some escape of these Indians. So that was successful. 
So after several groups of Indian soldiers escaped, he was kind of discovered. So he was sent back to work as a runner, that means a messenger, between the BAAG posts near Hong Kong. So he was actually a very successful agent. Now the term darky wouldn't be acceptable these days, but it was uh, one of the... <laughs> Uh, popularity or how would it have been described yes. in those days yes so at that time so one thing that struck me when i looked into this period is that uh on the one hand you have some outright racist attitude being being taken by all parties not not just the whites in fact so the, the chinese were pretty racist at that time in their language and their attitude towards different kinds of people because when this soldier went to Hong Kong and China. Originally, he saw himself as a Chinese. He wanted to join the Chinese army to fight against the Japanese. He was rejected. And what was his real name? Li Teng Sang. And why was he, was his, so Jamaican father or Jamaican, oh, it would have been Jamaican mother he, by the name, by a name like that. So she would have sure. been in Hong Kong or? His father worked as a, a kind of itinerary worker in Jamaica, but he has a wife there. Ah, I see. And uh, so that was so. And then this son had later come to Hong Kong. So he himself came back to Hong Kong in the late 1930s just to try to join the Chinese army. But he was rejected. That's why he joined in the Royal Artillery as a gunner. So that, after the Battle of Hong Kong, he went to report to BAAG. That's fascinating. Oh, well, thank you very much for investigating all of these stories so that these people's lives and you know, and bravery really is, is told more publicly. Just a sideline, uh, be, uh, because I was, I'm now writing a book about the experience of these Chinese. Oh, that's 2,000 of them. That mm. is why I have some of these stories, which, which can be rather new for you guys. Absolutely. Now, what's the situation? Uh, we're looking at, you know, these are the people who've served and uh, also then imprisoned or escape or work for the BAAG. But what's the situation for your normal, average Hong Kong citizen just trying to make it through the occupation? It was a very difficult time for practically everyone. But it's not for everyone, though, because some people actually benefited a lot from it. It's not just by working with the Japanese. In, in fact, uh, some of those war profiteers, basically, because somehow the, the property market still exists at that time. And you have a very chaotic financial situation in Hong Kong with Japanese printing uh, military nooks, which depreciated very quickly towards the end of the war. And people maintained a very strong black market, which still used Hong Kong dollars. So some of them actually profited a lot from it. But for the average Hong Kongers, uh, life was horrible because uh, especially for several classes, the middle class was hit hard particularly because especially because they were reliant on the international trade and the cultural and social activities that sustained pre-war Hong Kong. So all these activities ceased because of the war. So they were either being forced to leave the colony to China to seek a, a livelihood, or sometimes just being kicked out of Hong Kong with no one to depend on in, in China. And for the average uh, working class Hong Kongers, many were forced to work in Japanese controlled facilities, of course, especially for the, uh, the shipyards and the light and heavy industries. Many of them were actually uh, facing close to famine, in fact. By yes. the end of the war, rice price was so high and uh, depreciation of the military notes 
was so severe that the, the average working class simply could not buy enough food for, for themselves. So every day you would have several dozens of people being starved to death and their bodies were found on the streets. So cannibalism was actually a thing. It was, it was not just hearsay, a story or urban myth. Because from Japanese uh, documents, we can see that uh, the Japanese occupation government actually punished people for selling human flesh. The cases increased by the time throughout the war. For many decades, we didn't know it was real because no very concrete sources except for memories and hearsay. But several years ago, uh, we actually acquired very concrete proof in the form of a Japanese document. But on the other hand, what I would like to add is that it's not like every Japanese officials in Hong Kong were very cruel, cold-blooded men. In fact, some of the civilian Japanese officials tried to fight for the benefit of the locals. For example, Tokyo always pressured Hong Kong government to kick out the so-called surplus population. It's, it's a chilling term, really, out of Hong Kong. But one of the civilian officials, Japanese himself, resists, arguing that if we kick these people out of Hong Kong, they don't have any relatives in China. Hong Kong is their ancestral home. They would just die. So what do you mean by so sur tried... surplus population? So the Japanese termed the people surplus population because after capturing Hong Kong, they set a population limit for Hong Kong. They wanted to keep only half a million men, women and children in Hong Kong. The rest of them they called surplus population. How to differentiate that? They would try to separate those who could help their war efforts, those I who see. can work with key strategic industries. The rest, they should go. That's very horrible. How many women had to be also coerced into prostitution? Uh, that's very difficult to calculate because one thing where the Japanese forces captured Hong Kong, there were around 30,000 Japanese soldiers in Hong Kong, most of them on Hong Kong Island. So it was a very pressing issue, even for the Japanese authorities. So you had an episode during which you have the Japanese medical officer of the invading army talking with Phyllis Harrop of the Chinese Affair Office of the Hong Kong government, who, who was actually captured, but, but they have to work together to try to find enough prostitute to serve these 30,000 men. So at the very beginning of the Japanese occupation, the almost the first thing that the Japanese did was to try to uh, concentrate all these prostitutes to, on several points of, uh, of Hong Kong. For example, Setong uh, Joy, for example, Wan Chai, several streets along Wan Chai, Lockhart Road, and so on. But they have to build basically a so-called comfort area for the Japanese servicemen. And then they sent in prostitutes from Taiwan, from Canton. So you didn't really have a large-scale press ganging of local women to serve as comfort women. That didn't happen because they want the Japanese wanted pro, uh, professional prostitutes because they, they, they didn't really trust local women because of uh, so-called hygiene consideration. So it was not like a unsystematic rampage of raping and so on, but it was of course certainly a humanitarian disaster for the prostitutes being uh, forced to work in Hong Kong. But there would have been so a, there would have been surely rapes of civilian women that went on. Indeed, uh, during the especially during the first few weeks of the occupation when the Japanese forces that attacked Hong Kong were still there because it uh, it left to attack Java 
So he left Hong Kong in, in mid-January 1942. But during the first few weeks when those troops were still there, there were many raping cases, especially in several spots on Hong Kong islands, Wan Chai, Happy Valley, Causeway Bay area, where many Hong Kong Chinese lived. But in, in some areas like the peak or in central, things become more quiet because of the presence of the Japanese military police. As Kuang Chi Man explains, sometimes when we look back at war situations, there's a tendency to oversimplify. Yet, as he tells me, sometimes with any number of parties involved, it can be very complex. And that was the situation in Hong Kong. The guerrilla situation in Hong Kong was actually very complex than we previously understood, especially with the discovery of the papers of the British Army Aid Group, as well as the Japanese and the Chinese nationalist documents about the period. So we should approach this question not as a Axis versus Allied perspective. So the whole thing in Hong Kong and South China, especially southern part of Canton at that time, was one of almost like a warlord period. So on the one hand, you have, of course, the, the fighting between the Japanese forces and the Allied forces. But at the same time, you have lots of local forces, for example, the nationalist Chinese guerrillas, you have the communist guerrillas known as the East, later organized as East River Column or Brigade. And later on, you have, you have local bandits, local armed bands, which belongs to no one. So they worked independently. And then you have uh, so-called puppet armies. Those collaborationist armies worked for the Japanese, but they would consist of Cantonese officers and Cantonese soldiers. And then you have the Japanese army, of course, Japanese army outfits. But then the Japanese navy worked against the army. So they have their independent so-called coastal army as well, employed both the Japanese and the local people. And then you have the British Army Aid Group, of course, and then you have the Americans' Office of Strategic Services, OSS people, the predecessors of the CIA. So you have a wide variety mm. of experience and everyone was trying to expand their influence, form alliances. Many of such alliances were circumstantial, of course. They make or break alliances quickly. Sometimes they work together. Sometimes they sabotage each other's efforts, even among the Japanese as well. So it's a, it's a, ah, and of course, you have Macau, the international spy city in South China at that time. So it was actually, I, I don't want to sound over enthusiastic, but it was actually quite an interesting part of the Second World War because the Second World War was, has always been understood as a pretty clear affair. With one side, the good guys, one side, bad guys. But, but in fact, if you look into South China, the situation was very, very complex. Why are you so drawn as a, a subject of history to what occurred here during that time? My goal is to highlight one very important dimension of Hong Kong history, which is the diversity of historical experience of Hong Kongers. It was an age of nationalism, of course. It is now. Nationalism is very, still very strong. But if we look into the historical experience of Hong Kong and the Hong Kongers, you can see uh, the highly diversified experience. Some people benefited from this, some people suffered from that. So if we really want to understand the complexity of history, we have to look into wars. So it's always not a black or white 
met you have good Japanese civilian officials trying to resist Tokyo's un unreasonable demands. You have British Army age group people, you have Hong Kong Chinese soldiers, you have the nationalists, you have the communist agents and so on. So this is a very complex picture. So by looking, by highlighting the complexity, what I want to, to do is to allow maybe my generation or the next to take a more sympathetic view towards differences. By highlighting the, uh, the differences, you can, you can slowly accept the possibility of being different, isn't it? My thanks to war historian Kwong Chi Man, Associate Professor of the Department of History at Hong Kong Baptist University. Kwong Chi Man is the author of Eastern Fortress, A Military History of Hong Kong, 1840 to 1970. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage. <laughs> <laughs>